Hardly. It goes quick. I heard some research not long back that um, when you're young, like is a brook up the back, that a minute is actually a minute. Now, I'm no scientist, so bear with my uh, paraphrase of this scientific research. But when you get older, like my age and above, that a minute scientifically in your head is actually 45 seconds. They reckon because of the pressures of fast-paced society and everything that, you know, that we're under, when you're young, you know, a minute actually seems like a full minute. Whereas, you know, now when we get a little bit older, because of that, it actually is in our brain 45 seconds instead of 60 seconds. So we're actually missing roughly 15 seconds. I don't know if it changes when you retire and you start to slow down. No? no. Don't? So things change as you get older, don't they? I, I find things change as I get older. When I was young, I used to get in trouble with my dad a lot. I was a bit of a, bit of a youngster. And uh, he would just say all these funny, weird expressions. And I'd just think, yeah, 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 good one, Dad. <laughs> like this. But now I, I run a, um, a ministry with kids. And I find myself out of nowhere, these phrases that my dad has instilled in me have just... <laughs> so there was a kid not long back who was really, really um, quite naughty. And I had to haul him into my office. And uh, I asked him to explain himself why he'd done this to another kid and been violent and blah, blah, blah. And uh, he, he said, I, I thought, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, you know what thought did? And he, and he goes to me, what did thought do? And I had never, ever thought about that expression. <laughs> so I'm drilling this guy and just threw me totally. I didn't know how to answer it. I had to sort of change tack and, you know, just pretend I didn't hear him and just kept on my little, little rant. And I had never thought about, you know, what thought did. My dad just says, when I had said, you know, I thought, and he'd interrupt me and say, you know, what thought did. And I had never... Another expression that he says was bob down when you're wrong. Now, I actually know what that one means, and I use that quite, quite a bit. I think it's a pretty good expression that, uh, you know, when you've done something wrong, you just got to take it on the chin. A lot of times we just come up with the excuses, oh, well, this person did that to me, blah, blah, blah. But so some sayings that my dad instilled in me make sense, and some... Not so. Does anyone actually know what thought did? Thought his feet were out of bed, so he got out and put them in. <laughs> Colin's got it. So, sorry, say it again a bit slower. <laughs> I'm a bit slow in this cold morning. He thought his feet were out of bed, yeah. so he got out and put them in. Ah, so it actually makes a bit more... Wow. If, my, if my dad had to give me the second half, Colin's got his hand up. Plant a feather and thought it would grow. Yeah. At the end of that, or was that a different... That's the end of it. That's it. Like, so, cool. All right. Yeah. No worries. So it does make a little bit more sense. And I thought I'd do a little uh, bit of experiment of my own here today. I'd like to give you guys a balloon. Which I'd like you to grab one each. I have opened them. Grab a balloon each and pass it along. Now, I want to um, throw at you... Um, some sayings. I want to give you a saying. Now, you have your balloon. If you agree with a saying, I want you to put a bit of air into it. If you really agree with it, I'd like you to put a lot of air into it. If you don't agree with it, I don't want you to let any air out, but just don't put any air in. Does that make sense? So if my dad or this kid had said to me, you know what thought did, I wouldn't really know what that means up until today. So I wouldn't put any air in. But Bob down when you're wrong, I really agree with that. I would have put a lot of air into the balloon. You understand? So as I read out a saying, I want you to tell me 
through your air in your balloon how much you actually agree with that saying. Does that make sense? Any questions? Has everyone got a balloon? You know what thought thought? All right. <laughs> Seems to be. <coughs> All right. Yep. So there's a bit of variation on the, on this thought saying, eh? Round Australia. Everyone got a balloon now? All right. Here we go. This is the first saying. Everyone got the uh, your lips pursed? Give it a little bit of a stretch so you know you can get some air in it. Okay. First saying: Honesty is the best policy. If you agree with that, put a bit of air into it. If you don't, just don't blow into it. Second one, cleanliness, which is what my mum used to say. Cleanliness is next to godliness. I used to have a pretty clean house. No, don't agree with that? Spare the rod, spoil the child. Oh, here we go. <laughs> okay, fourth one, money is the root of all evil. No, well, you don't have to put air in it if you don't agree with it. God helps those who help themselves. No? Beggars can't be choosers. Another thing my mum used to say to me. <laughs> Keep putting your ear in. You looked up at the wrong time there, <laughs> A man is known by the company he keeps. Yep, a bit more agreement there. Every cloud has a silver lining. And last one, actions speak louder than words. Okay, that looks very colourful. Oh, someone really agrees with that one. Okay, so if you can, if you know how to tie it off, can you please tie it off? And I don't want you to uh, be distracted throughout the sermon, but I'm going to come back a little bit later and we're going to talk about what these balloons have to do with what I'm talking about today. We're going to have a look in a second about a story in chapter 7 of the book of Luke, Luke 7, 36 to 50, which is entitled Anointing His Feet. So I'll be reading from the message version. If you don't have the message version, it might be a little bit easier just to listen to me, but you can get it out if you want. Luke 7, 36 to 50. And as I said, a little bit later on, we're going to check out what these balloons have to do with it. Now, this story, before we get into it, um, introduces one of the major themes of Luke's gospel. And it's the long sort of run, running battle between Jesus and the Pharisees over, over whether he should actually be hanging out with sinners. Now, Jesus, uh, in previous in, in uh, Luke, has already been in trouble with the Pharisees for healing a man on the Sabbath and allowing the disciples to feast instead of fasting. And this is just a couple of chapters before in 5 and 6. But this is one of the first times that he's actually judged for fellowshipping with an immoral person. So when we have a look at this story, it's sort of helpful if we actually think about Pharisees in modern day terms. Like sometimes, I don't know about you, but you hear the word Pharisee, you picture this old archaic guy with a little bit of a beard, he's got a really weird sort of historical hat going on sort of a legalistic, archaic type image. Well, I don't know about you, but it it conjures up in my head. But if you actually look into it, Pharisees are sort of your modern-day Christian God expert. I think we can all think of people that we know about like that. You might have pastors or elders or biblical scholars or Christians who've um, studied up at um, Bible college. Um, But the difficult truth to accept is sort of most of us think that we're actually experts on God. And we're going to have a look at that with our balloons a bit later on. Most of us would fight, perhaps to the death, for the truth about who God is and what he's like. So the Bible, in this passage and throughout the Bible, is constantly disrupting our ideas about God and makes us rethink them. 
So this is what this story is about. So let's have a look at it now. So it's helpful for us in light of that to sort of imagine ourselves as Simon the Pharisee, not as this archaic sort of weird hat wearing guy, but sort of like you and I. Okay, so Luke 7, 36 to 50, anointing his feet. One of the Pharisees asked him over for a meal. He went to the Pharisee's house and sat down at the dinner table. Just then, a woman of the village, the town harlot, having learned that Jesus was a guest in the home of the Pharisee, came with a bottle of very expensive perfume and stood at his feet, weeping, raining tears on his feet. Letting down her hair, she dried his feet, kissed them and anointed them with perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man was the prophet I thought he was, he would have known what kind of woman this is who is falling all over him. Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Oh, tell me, he replied. Two men were in debt to a banker. One owed 500 silver pieces, the other 50. Neither of them could pay up. And so the banker cancelled both of the debts. Which of these two would be more grateful? Simon answered, I suppose the one who was forgiven the most. That's right, said Jesus. Then turning to the woman, but speaking to Simon, he said, Do you see this woman? I came to your home. You provided no water for my feet, but she rained tears on my feet and dried them with her hair. You gave me no greeting, but from the time I arrived, she hasn't quit kissing my feet. You provided nothing for freshening up, but she has soothed my feet with perfume. Impressive, isn't it? She was forgiven many, many sins. And so she is very, very grateful. If the forgiveness is minimal, the gratitude is minimal. Then he spoke to her, I forgive your sins. That set the dinner guest talking behind his back. Who does he think he is? forgiving sins. He ignored them and said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now I talk about when I was a youngster. Who remembers when they were a youngster at school? Can you remember back in English class, what actually makes up a story? What, what elements or what parts of a story? Does anyone remember? Beginning, middle and end. Yep. Any, anything else? Paragraphs. Paragraphs. Yep. You're thinking a little bit Two more nitty. I was thinking more like, you know, plot. You know, characters. So there's setting, all those type of things, isn't there? But every single story that you possibly can find has something else that we don't, we think about plot, we think about setting, and we think about characters and those type of things. But there's also something that actually drives the story. And it's normally near the start, and it's some sort of conflict. It's some sort of tension, or it's some sort of question that needs to be answered or resolved. So then you spend the rest of the story trying to find out what the actual answer is. All stories have this. Now, whether that be um, like my daughter at the moment, my three-year-old youngest daughter, she's really into Dr. Zeus. And every single day, about four times a day, I have to read to her um, Green Eggs and Ham. And she goes, Green Eggs and Ham. And she can't talk very well. She's got a speech delay. She says, Green Eggs and Ham, Green Eggs and Ham, like this. And so you sit down and talk. And basically, Sam I Am tries to get... Oh, Sam, they try and get Sam I Am to eat these green eggs and ham and they try in the train and try on a car and they try um, in the dark and in the rain and all those type of things. And the, the, it's a basic kid's little story. But basically the whole point is, is at the start of the question, is he actually going to try these green <coughs> eggs and ham? And the whole story is, follows out, does that actually be resolved? Does he? And 
I don't want to spoil it for those of you who haven't read it before, but <laughs> he does eat it at the end and he really enjoys it. It's, and it's easy to see in sort of um, adult fiction novels, especially like, uh, like Agatha Christie sort of whodunit. Like, I've never read them, but, you know, a butler gets killed at the start. That drives the plot, doesn't it? Because it's a whodunit. You go through the whole story and you try and find out who actually did it. And sometimes we think about sort of non-Bible stories in that way, but we don't often bring that to the Bible. I don't, I don't really know why that is. Bible stories are no different. They are written by an author and he, or yeah, he generally, because it was always he, I was going to say she, but there is no she's back then. But not that there weren't she's, but no she's actually. <laughs> I'm reeling my tongue back in there. But anyway, basically these guys wrote these, these books, and, but they wrote passages and they wrote or pericopes is the little uh, things, a big fancy word, which kind of like Periscope without the S, but basically they're little short stories and they're little bits of narrative and they, we actually read them, we think, oh yeah, that's all right, that's a nice little story or you know, we can glean that from it. But we don't often think that the author actually has a point that they're trying to make here within that little, little story and it is. And so at the start of each and every little story that we find in the Bible, there is an actual point that you need to find because it's sort of like the treasure map, the key to finding out what the author is actually trying to say to us. So what is it that actually drives the point in this story? We're going to have a look at that we've just read. In verse 36 to 38, Jesus is invited to the house of Simon the Pharisee. Now, this is not the problem of the story. The problem occurs when the sinful woman starts to anoint Jesus' feet and Jesus does nothing to stop her. In verse 39, Simon's reaction to what he has seen provides us with the whole point of the story. This is the key, the problem that needs to be resolved. He thinks to himself, if this Jesus guy knew who the woman was, then he's no way he would have let her touch her feet. And since he's actually letting that happen, letting her touch your feet, then he can't know who she is and extend it out of that or what she's done. Therefore, this bloke Jesus is not a prophet. So the problem to be resolved is, is Jesus a prophet or is he not a prophet? And we see this type of narrative conflict time and time again in the Gospels. The point of the story is, is Jesus actually who he says he is? But this time, something wonderful happens. Jesus not only ignores this question set out by um, Simon about whether he's a prophet or not, he also ignores it. He ignores the whole point of the story in order to change it and make his own point. So sometimes you've got the question at the start, the green eggs and ham type thing, and it follows through as easy. You see how it's resolved and then you can work that out. This time, Jesus knows what's going on. He knows that Simon thinks is this guy a prophet or not? And he goes, I'm not going to directly answer that. I'm going to make my own point. And that is the whole point, if you know what I'm saying. It's a bit confusing, this one. But anyway, we'll keep going. I'll explain a bit further later on. In verses 40 to 43, Jesus answers Simon's concerns with a story. But note, as I said, this story doesn't actually answer the question of whether he's a prophet or not. Jesus ignores this issue and speaks about forgiveness instead. But, as I say, he knows exactly what's going on in Simon's mind. In verses 44 to 48, Jesus turns his full attention to Simon in order to teach him a lesson about forgiveness, about love, about repentance and worship in just a few sort of short sentences. And note how he does this. 
he compares Simon with this sinful woman. Simon had looked at this woman as if she was dirt, as if she was absolutely nothing. But Jesus sort of turns it all on its head. He turns the tables completely around and shows Simon how pathetic his actions have been and how wonderful the actions of this woman's love have been. Simon is well and truly put in his place. And we actually, after this story, we don't actually hear him speak again in this little story. Simon invited Jesus for a meal. And why did he do this? He probably had bad motives. He probably wanted to try and trick him. But maybe it actually, he genuinely wanted to find out whether Jesus was a prophet, as the people around him had been saying. So why do you think we are told Simon's name? Why wasn't it just like, oh, he went to this Pharisee's house? I think Luke does this because by knowing his actual name, it makes us sort of relate to him. It makes us feel a little bit more warmer towards him. And it's sort of, I think, part of Luke's strategy. Luke is a fantastic writer. If he called him a, just a Pharisee, we would think about this big, you know, big hat, archaic, historical figure, as in they wouldn't in those days, but we would probably feel quite harshly towards them, a bit distant. But maybe, as I said, Simon's motives weren't actually that bad. Perhaps he was actually willing to be open to be learn something from Jesus. After all, in verse 43, Simon actually understands what Jesus is trying to teach him. Now, in some ways, he can sort of, if we actually thought about it, you can actually understand Simon's point of view, can't you? Like, as the message puts it, as I just read it, you've got this town harlot weeping and caressing Jesus' feet. She began to wash his feet with tears. She actually let her hair down and began to wipe the tears from Jesus' feet. And this was, like, we think about it, that's a little bit weird, but this in those days was absolutely massive. It broke so many sort of social conventions that it wasn't funny. So touching and caressing a man's feet would have sort of sexual overtones, as did letting your hair down. In those days, if you let your hair down, that was, that was a sign of prostitution. prostitution. You never did that in public. Women didn't do that. So here you have Simon thinking this woman, who in his eyes is completely unclean, touching Jesus' feet. This would have just set every alarm bell off under the sun. Would have been outraged at this scandal. So Simon was meant to be in control of the situation. After all, it's his house, isn't it? And as the story begins, Simon does what any host would do under those circumstances. He judges. You can imagine him saying, what the heck is going on here? This is my house and I will not allow anything like this to go on. Nothing like this at all is going to happen under my roof. And we've all done that, haven't we? We all make judgments about other people from our own positions of security. Now, it might be like Simon, it might be in our house. That's not going to be tolerated under my roof. It might be from our church. Amongst people that sort of think the same way that we do. It might be even about your own doctrines, your positions of doctrinal security. We might make judgments about baptism because we're Baptists. If we're in the Brethren Church, we might make judgments about communion. If we're in the Church of Christ, about the Christian walk and so on. But what is interesting here? is that Jesus is not intimidated by our positions of security. He speaks anyway. He teaches anyway. He loves anyway. 
He forgives anyway. If the problem that drives the action of this story is whether Jesus is a prophet or not, how is this problem resolved? And as I said before, it isn't. Which is why it's kind of hard to sort of work out this story. Jesus ignores the point of the story to make his own point, And that is the point. And I'll try and explain that now. The story begins with a sinful woman washing the feet of Jesus. She is weeping. She weeps out of love, out of repentance. But Simon, because he views the situation through sort of the eyes of a, a religious expert, an expert on all things, all things God, can only sort of think out of that way. He can only think under those legalistic terms. In other words, he says there is no way at all Jesus can be a prophet. Simon uses all his experience, all his knowledge of the rules, all his social conventions, all his knowledge of the law and the prophets. And what what actually should happen to this immoral woman? To come to the conclusion that if Jesus was a prophet, he would not be letting this occur. As I said, Jesus doesn't even honour this legalistic position with a response. Instead, he tells a story of forgiveness and then points to the woman as someone who has been forgiven and as someone who actually adores God a lot because of it. In other words, the point is not whether Jesus is a prophet. It's about whether he is God. It's about whether he has the power to forgive sins and whether or not he is worthy to be worshipped, worthy to be adored. When Jesus compares Simon to the woman in verses 44 to 48, the point isn't who's got the best theology out of the two or who has the best doctrines going on or who's faith is the strongest the point is which of these two Simon or the woman is actually able to see Jesus to see the real Jesus which of them recognizes that the grace the forgiveness of Jesus is is the grace and mercy of the living God and who is it is it Simon no it's the woman this unclean woman she's a sinful immoral woman but she finds favour in the eyes of God because she adores Jesus. But the legalistic religious people who are sitting around the table, they're not done with yet. In verse 49, they have one more bit of a grumble. This time it's not whether is Jesus a prophet or not, but it's about whether he actually has the right to forgive sins. In other words, religious people are never satisfied. They, we, never stop judging others. So I think there's a massively harsh lesson for us as Christians here. We, as I said before, are the modern day, or potentially the modern day Pharisees. We can make judgments about other people based on our own moral values, on our doctrines, of our positions of faith, our theology, of our views of what we view is right and what we view is wrong. We religious folk have pretty large balloons. Let me just grab this one that's fallen down. At the start, I asked you a few basic little, you know, questions or, you know, what are they called? Sayings. That's what I'm looking for. And we filled our balloons based on what we actually value, didn't we? Now, if I asked you, uh, you know, another 20, you probably would have filled it with a bit more air. And if you had asked some other questions of your own, you would have filled it with a bit more air. And you, we all have these balloons We all fill our own balloons with what we value, what we view as right and what we view as wrong. And we actually walk around life looking through, it's a bit hard normally, (laughs) 
a balloon is, I thought these balloons would actually be see-through, so it would be a lot easier. But we actually walk around life looking through our balloons. We look through what we value, what we view as right and wrong. And we actually see God through the lens of this balloon. The lens of our own values. And the only reason we sort of judge other people is because why? We think God would do that too. We tar him with the same brush as our own self-righteousness. And we really hold tight to what's in our balloon. We're like Simon the Pharisee, who never, ever in a million years would have believed that he was the person in the wrong. But at the end of the story, this guy who was so, so right in his own mind, he went away with egg all over his face. And this may really sound bizarre, but it's easy to grow up in church and miss Jesus. You can have the best morals under the sun. You can have the best position of faith or doctrines, the best theology. You might attend two or three Bible studies a week. You might come to the prayer meeting even though it's cold and rainy. I shouldn't really do that on my microphone. You may get up and preach. You may be here and set up the chairs and greet people at the door and you may do work for God. You may go out there and try and reach the unwashed and you and I can still miss him. Because I think the air that actually makes up our balloon, that actually really can be enough to actually sustain us. Like Simon, we can hold fast to our values, our morals, our legalism, our own set of truths, our, what we think is right and wrong. And we think, yes, we hold them really tight because that, they're exactly, they match up with God's. They're exactly the same as his sets of truth. And we are so holding on to them, we would fight for them. We would get up and challenge anyone. We would stand our ground. And if, it, if we had to, we would be willing to die for them. And yet, like Simon... We can miss Jesus. We can have the best balloon under the sun in our own eyes and we can miss his mercy. We can miss his love. We can miss his grace and we can miss his forgiveness. These little balloons have been, become our sort of security blanket. We have become experts in what fills up my balloon. Well, I have become an expert in what fills up my balloon and... Billy, you've become an expert on what fills up your balloon. And Nadine, you too, and everyone else here. You know exactly what's in your balloon and you hold fast to it. But this story demonstrates that Jesus doesn't want us to hold on to our balloons. He doesn't want us just to remain this archaic religious expert. What does he want? He just wants us to love him. That's his hope for us. That's his only hope for us that we come to see him, that somehow we can take down our balloons and we can see him and realise that seeing him, we've actually seen his father, that their mercy and their grace, their love and forgiveness are exactly the same and that this love, this mercy, this grace and forgiveness is the same for everyone. It's extended to anyone and everyone, even these people that we judge all the time. So God wants us to 
to not be these religious experts. He wants us to see Jesus. And I want to pray for us today because I, 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 think, I think it's easy for us just to hold tight onto them and, and continue on our lives and just be sustained by the air that's actually in our balloon. But he wants us to, to do away with that. He wants us to stop clinging to that and cling to him. He wants us to stop looking through that to see his love, to see his mercy and his grace. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we ask for forgiveness that, um, that we have our own, own balloons and, and sometimes, Lord, that's what sustains us, Lord, instead of that being you. May we see you not through our balloons but through Jesus. May we, like the woman in this story, see the real Jesus. May we see your grace. May we, may we see your amazing mercy, your love, your forgiveness that you have brought us. And may we see others through your eyes, Lord. We ask today that you actually disrupt our positions of security, the areas in our lives that we're sort of clinging to and holding fast to, that actually stop us from seeing you. Show us our positions of security that you want to speak to, Lord. And I pray that um, you give us ears to actually listen, Lord. And I pray that you actually give us hearts that as scary as it may be to actually respond to that, Lord. Amen. Thanks, Chad. You can come back again. (coughs) How big were your balloons, people? (coughs) Well, I could use mine as a hot air balloon, I reckon. We do have to be careful what we say and do and how we think, don't we? It's, uh, It's always challenging. And the only way to do it is in the blood of Christ. There's power in the blood. Let's stand, let's sing. Would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you or evil a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, wonder-working power in the blood. Of the Lamb, there is power, there is power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Would you be free from your greed, lust and pride? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Come for a cleansing to Calvary's tide. There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, there is power, wonder-working power. In the blood, 
of the Lamb. There is power, there is power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Would you be white, Jesus, your King? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you live daily His praises to sing? There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, there is power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, there is power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, there is power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Dear Lord, we do thank you that there is power in the blood. Help us this week to toss away our balloons, all our hot air, and just serve you, love you, to see things differently, to see things in love and grace. We just uh, thank you for the message this morning. Thank you for the wisdom that was presented. We pray these things in your son's wonderful name. Amen.